Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you here. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead, and uh, it's my privilege to be able to share with you this morning uh, from the Word. I want to start, of course, by recognizing that today is Father's Day, and uh, to those of you who are fathers, happy Father's Day. Uh, being a father is not an easy task, and uh, I know, and we, we know, we understand that those of us who, who share that responsibility uh, are all too aware and regularly reminded of our shortcomings and our failings. And we try very, very hard, you try very, very hard to be the father that you want to be, the father that you need to be, and you rarely measure up to the standard you set for yourself. And so this morning, uh, I'd just like to say to you, uh, there is grace in all of your failures, in all of your triumphs, in everything that is being a father, there is grace for you. Um, we serve a God who is sovereign over all, including over our children and their lives. And so while we, I, can get it into our minds that it is everything that I do is dependent on what happens with my kids, and all of their victories are somehow my doing, and all of their failures are my fault, uh, it's important to remember that that's not true. That there is a God who is above all, who is our Father, and He is the perfect Father. And so when we talk about Father's Day and we recognize that there are, for some of you, uh, for many, rather than thinking as a father, thinking as a child, um, some of us have had wonderful fathers, and Father's Day is just a great time to remember and honor that man, and for some and for many, uh, our fathers fell short in some way. Maybe uh, for some of us, you know, you never even knew your father. Or your father wasn't the man that he should have been, did not live up to um, the kind of example that we see laid out for what a father should be. And for those of you who hearing and thinking about Father's Day is a struggle, because of pain and hurt, what I want to say to you is you do have a good father, a heavenly father, a perfect father. God is the perfect father who will never abandon you, will always love you, not based on anything you've done, not based on your merits. God is your father does not come to you saying, well, what have you done lately? Are you measuring up? When you approach God, you don't have to approach him wondering if this time you've done enough to earn his love. God is a good, loving, and kind father who looks on you and approves of you, not based upon your merit, but based upon Christ's sacrifice for you. So, whether you are a father or the child of a father, we hope that you have a happy Father's Day. And we hope that it's full of grace and love. And, uh, and we celebrate you. And for those who grieve on Father's Day, either as a father or as a child, we grieve with you and we mourn with you and we extend God's love to you as well. All right, so this week we continue a series that we started last week. Uh, and again, we are in the book of Matthew chapter 18. And over the course of this summer, we're going to be looking at parables. Parables are stories that Jesus told. They're allegorical stories that Jesus told. Uh, but they're stories that illuminate truths about God and about us. 
And even though they may seem simple on the surface, these stories that Jesus told are actually very deep. And they give to us as listeners, if we will listen, and Steve talked about this last week, um, one of the questions that, that um, Jesus' followers asked him at one point was, why do you always speak in these parables? Why do you tell these stories? Why don't you just come right out and say what you mean? Because these metaphorical stories that Jesus tells, and as we go through these over the course of the summer, there's going to be some of them where, like today's, I believe, is pretty straightforward, and you just read it and you go, okay, I get that. And even at the end, Jesus puts in like a little, and this is what it means. And so there's some on that level. And then there are others that Jesus just tells the story and he moves on and you just go, what? Like, what are you talking about? And why does Jesus tell these stories and use these metaphors and and wrap everything up in this kind of allegorical, literary, like, what is going on kind of a thing? Why not just come right out with it? And Jesus told his followers at one point, he's like, because there's a reason to it, there's a purpose, and the purpose is this. These stories and these truths are for those who really diligently want to hear. And if you'll open up your heart, and if you'll do the work, if you'll dig in, If you'll truly listen, then God will speak to you through these stories. And so these stories are able to give us both comfort and conviction. They'll make us uncomfortable. And this today's story is should, if you're listening, if you're hearing what Jesus is saying, in many ways it should make you uncomfortable. And yet, at the same time, at the same time, the deeper you dig, And the more you lean in and listen to what Jesus is saying, it'll also drive you into a deeper comfort in who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so that's exactly what we see in today's story as well. It has a very simple meaning and a very profound meaning. And I I don't want to overcomplicate it. As we work through this story, there's a very simple, understandable meaning. However, there are parts of this story that we could miss And especially as we draw to the end, as we just read through it, at the end, there's this very perplexing portion of this parable that we really need to deal with that I believe actually holds the key to the whole thing, um, that moves it from the level of, okay, this is clearly a story about forgiveness, but there's something in here that moves it from the level of just like, you ought to forgive to something much deeper and much better. So we'll talk about that. Uh, Some of the times when Jesus told a parable, there's a real clear reason in the scripture for why he was telling that story, and this is one of those cases. There starts out in verse 21, we're in Matthew chapter 18, uh, verse 21, that there's a question, and that this whole story Jesus tells is in response to a very straightforward question that Peter, Peter's one of Jesus' apostles. Peter's known kind of as the apostle who says what everybody else is thinking, Peter's the guy who just talks, Um, and you all have a friend like that, right? He's the guy who every once in a while says more than he meant to say, right? And you're like, oh, we know exactly what you're thinking, and that's a good thing, but sometimes every once in a while, maybe it'd be better if we didn't. That's Peter. And um, so Peter comes to Jesus, and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, sometimes commentators look at this, and they kind of laugh at Peter a little bit because it's like, oh, Peter's trying to be like really holy, like hey, look, I'm willing to forgive seven times. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? Um, I look at this instead. I hear within this question that Peter's asking a certain level of hurt. Okay, we're dealing with forgiveness today. 
Forgiveness is a difficult topic to talk about, not because it's unclear what the rules are regarding forgiveness. Peter's asking this question here about rules. Jesus, what are the, the forgiveness rules? What do I need to do? The, the reason forgiveness is hard is not because we don't know for sure what the rules are. In fact, Jesus' answer about the rules is there aren't really rules. You just have to forgive. Forgiveness is not hard because of the rules. Forgiveness is hard because of the pain behind it. By definition, forgiveness involves hurt and loss and pain. Whatever it is that when you hear the word forgiveness where your mind goes, it's not a happy place, right? The reason you struggle to forgive is not because you're not aware of a hurt or a pain or a betrayal. The reason you and I struggle with forgiveness is because it hurts. And so I hear in Peter's question a great deal of hurt and a great deal of pain. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I believe there's a very clear implication here that Peter is bumping up against a situation where someone has hurt him already multiple times. And that he has, to the best of his ability, and we'll talk about that, but to the best of his ability, tried to forgive. But every time he forgives, it keeps happening again. And Peter has reached his limit. I have to believe that someone has done the exact same thing to hurt him probably six times. Or maybe eight. I don't think the number seven is random here, right? It has happened over and over. And Peter's question is, Jesus, do I have to keep forgiving? I have reached the limit. I have done all that is humanly possible in this relationship. I can give no more. Seven times, is that enough? Can I just say I've done all I need to do and now I can wash my hands and just move on? And Jesus says to him, I I do not say to you seven times. Seventy-seven times, seven times seven. It depends on your translation. Here's the point. Jesus is not giving a rule here. Okay? He's not saying um, seven's good, just keep going. But when they hit this number, then you're done. Jesus is giving an extremely large, this is what we call hyperbole. What Jesus is saying is, there is no end. You just keep forgiving. It's not seven times. It's really not 77 or 490. It's none of those. It's it's on and on and on. And every time you think you're done forgiving, you just forgive again. And to Peter, and to all of us listening, we all would say, that's impossible. That's just not possible. You can't do that. No one has an endless capacity for forgiveness. How, how is it humanly possible to continue forgiving over and over and over as you keep getting hurt, as you keep absorbing the pain? How can you keep giving forgiveness? And so Jesus tells this story 
not just to prove that you should forgive. Now, that's a part of it. But the deeper meaning to this story is, here's how it is possible to continually forgive. Let's look at the story. Verse 22, therefore, because I'm telling you this, because I'm saying you have to forgive over and over and over again, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, um, just a little bit contextually here to understand what we're talking about when we talk about a king and his servants. We're probably talking about um, the word translated as servants is often translated as like a bond servant, which means this. Here's, here's the situation. This is a very wealthy, very wealthy individual, okay? He has a title. He's a king. He's a master. Whatever title you want to give him, and he has people, these aren't just people who work for him as hired employees, these are people who work for him because they have a debt to him, okay? And in the ancient, uh, in, in, in this culture, in this day, a bondservant was a person who worked similar, but this gets really tricky because this is, uh, we have a different conception of, of the term slave, and so it's not the way we picture slavery, um, but worked for a person to pay off a debt that they owed to that person. Oftentimes, the debt was very large. And in this case, it says, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That is an enormous debt. Now, again, this is a money, different type of money than what we look at today, and there's no straight, like, exchange rate between what the money was then and what the money is now. So here's what we have to understand. 10,000 talents would be more than any servant could ever earn in their lifetime, okay? It's in the millions of dollars, probably, if we were going to try to put it into modern-day money, and that might help us to just think he owed him millions of dollars, but here's, here's what we have to keep in mind. In this culture and in this day, there was no such thing as a middle class. There were two classes. There were the rich and there were the poor, and there was no way to cross over between the two, Okay, so the master in this story is in a completely different economic stratosphere than his servant. The only way that someone who was poor could ever pay someone who was wealthy would be to work for them, to render them service equal to the amount they owed them. However, this debt 10,000 talents was beyond the scope even of that ever being possible. That he could work for several lifetimes and never be able to pay off this debt. And in Jesus' story, for whatever reason, the king has decided to settle the accounts with his servants, which means this, rather than allowing them to continue working to pay off their debts, he said it's time to get current on all of these. And so he's bringing them in, and he's saying, we're going to square things away, and you've worked this amount of time, and you still owe me this much, and so from what you owe, and then we'll settle it all out. And this guy has worked and has served the king for some amount of time. He's put in his effort, and yet he still owes this massive debt. And verse 25 says, and since he could not pay, and I think the, the, the wording there is intentional, it's not that he wouldn't pay, it's not that it would be hard to pay, it was literally impossible the debt was so huge, there's no way, no way this servant's ever going to be able to pay off his debt. Since he could not pay, 
His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, again, this strikes us as incredibly cruel. How can you sell another human being? Okay, so let me reframe this just a little bit so that we understand what's going on here. What the master is actually saying is this debt is going to be transferred. Okay, you owe me so much money. And for whatever reason, the master is in a place now where he's saying, I I need the money. And unless you can give me the money itself, your working for me is no longer giving what I need. And so what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to take your debt and transfer it to somebody else, which means I'm going to sell you to someone else who does have the financial means. They'll give me the money, and you'll go and work for them. Your servitude, your, your service is just going to be transferred to somebody else. And then I, the master, will be settled and clean and clear, and you'll move on. However, within that, that's not an optimal situation. For me, I mean, we can only assume, but there are multiple possible reasons. Number one, I mean, it's being moved. Who knows where? This could involve moving out of the country, out of whatever. He's being moved on. Um, he's being given to a new master. There's an implication here that this current king is actually a good master that working for him was not as bad as it could be and then he throws in with his wife and children and there's a possibility that selling him his wife and children might not all be one transaction this could be his family being broken up and dissolved so for for a multitude of reasons this solution is just unthinkable but the servant knows he can't pay. But the alternative is so much worse. Now, when we talk about it, here's, I, I, let me say this again. I, I need to stress this. What the master is suggesting here is perfectly legal and it's perfectly just. Within the structure of what we would consider to be moral, and again, I know because of time and because of the way um, that we think of slavery and American slavery and and what that looks like, it's really hard for us to conceive of an economy or a culture where someone working as a servant to someone to pay off a debt would ever be considered moral. But within the structure and the culture of this day, it's a different situation. Within the structure and the culture and and the morality and the way that this culture worked, this is the right thing for the master to do. And what we're going to see is there's an alternative that would actually be worse. The master, the king, in this story, is perfectly within his rights to do what is just. The solution that the king proposes in verse 25 is what the servant deserves. Because he has a debt that he's unable to pay, he deserves to be sold to have that debt paid off. So the servant fell on his knees, verse 26, imploring him, he's begging him, please have patience with me. I will pay you everything. Now here's the thing. We just said, that's not even possible. He can say it, but Regardless of how much patience the king has, 
there is absolutely no chance this servant is ever going to pay off this debt. It's never going to happen. He can work the rest of his natural life. He will never pay off the debt he owes. It's an empty promise. And yet, verse 27, out of pity for him, there's an emotional response. The master looks on the servant and he feels pity. He looks on his situation and recognizes this debt will never be paid. On his own, he can never get himself out of this situation. And the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Okay, so let's pause. Up to this point, um, Jesus' application, or Jesus' story, and this is where, okay, let me, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling now. Let me, let me clarify. Jesus told this story during his earthly ministry, there's a piece of this story that his listeners would not have fully grasped a hold of at the time, but that we now, looking back, can see exactly what Jesus is leading to here. And here's what I mean by that. So far, up to this point in the story, the king here is God, and the servant is all of us. All of us have a debt that we owe to God. Because of our sin, because we took as humanity and each of us individually took this perfect world that God created and we broke it through our sin and we separated ourselves from God and we rebel against him, collectively and individually we turn our backs on him. In our pride we say we know a better way to live but we just continually keep piling up in sin after sin after sin, a debt against a holy and perfect God to a level that we could never, ever, ever make up for ourselves. That when we come to God and we recognize the gap in holiness, in perfection, in goodness, in righteousness between us and Him, that that gap is so massive there is no possible human way we could ever bridge that gap. And that any punishment that God could give to us is totally just and totally moral and totally what we deserve. And often we come to God and recognizing that gap between us and Him, we throw ourselves down and we say, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. God, I'm going to make this up to you. I know that so far, everything I've done has just piled up to what I owe you. But from here on out, I promise I'm changing things. I'm going to do more. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to be kinder. I'm going to give more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to be a better father or a better mother or a better son or a better boyfriend or a better wife or a better whatever. I'm going to do better. Yeah. 
But regardless of what we promise, and regardless of what we do, we do not have the capacity to make up the debt that we owe. Because the standard is perfection, and we will never, ever meet that standard. And yet God, in His mercy, in His goodness, looks on us, and rather than saying, okay, well, let's rearrange the terms of the deal. Let me give you an extension. Why don't you try harder? Why don't you say this many Hail Marys? Or why don't you try doing this many good deeds? Or why don't you just be a little bit better here and tweak this and do better at this? God, instead, he says, you know what? I am going to erase your debt. Now, don't don't mistake what's going on here, though. When God erases our debt... There's still a cost that has to be paid. Think about this story again. The king is owed 10,000 talents, millions of dollars. He needs the money. When he releases the servant from the debt, what happens to that money? What happens to that debt? What happens to that loss? The king has to absorb it himself. Those 10,000 talents were out there. They were spent. They were used. They came from his coffers into the servants. They were spent. They are not coming back. There's always a cost to forgiveness. For God to forgive us, there has to be a cost. And again, this part, Jesus' listeners at the time wouldn't have known. But a few months later, that cost was going to be absorbed. When Jesus, who had lived an absolutely perfect life, allowed himself to be tortured, hung, on a cross, and executed. Taking a punishment he did not deserve, he absorbed the cost of our sin. He took our debt on himself so that God could look on us and say your debt's forgiven. And without Jesus' sacrifice, there's no possibility of forgiveness. Because God is perfectly just, and justice demands payment for sin. And you and I, on our own, will never be able to make that payment. But Jesus took the payment on himself. And that's what's represented, that's what's represented by this king. To say to his servant, you are released 
from your debt, you are free, came at an incredible cost to the king. And to hear that, and to know that that option was there, should, should have filled that servant with an overwhelming sense of joy and freedom and an overflowing of mercy himself. But that's not where the story stops. Jesus goes on. Verse 28, But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, let me pause here and just give you some context because again, talents, denarii, what is that? A hundred denarii is not an insignificant amount of money. Um, it's, it's several weeks or several months worth of wages for servants at that time. This is in the hundreds, possibly thousands of dollars range. And again, depending on your financial situation, that may seem more or less significant. But for a servant, in this day and in this culture, a hundred denarii was a significant amount of money. And so this servant goes out and at some point had loaned to a fellow servant a hundred denarii. And he decides that it's time for him to settle his accounts. So he finds him, and very gently seizes him by the throat and begins to choke him, and says, pay what you owe. And then the parallel, and Jesus is just so blatant here, this fellow servant falls down and pleads with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you, and it's word for word, it's word for word what he just said to the king. And it somehow just flies completely over his head. Here's the ironic part about this. It is possible, possible, that given enough time, his fellow servant may be able to pay that amount back. That's a lot of money. And again, in this culture and in this day, it wasn't like he could just go out and and just whip up a hundred denarii like that. He's a servant too. He is also in a position, again, He's a servant, which means he's a bondservant, which means he himself has a debt to the master or to the king that he has to pay back. And yet, it is conceivable that given enough time, he might be able to pay him back. But the first servant refuses, verse 30, he refused. He went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Um, Which, of course, begs the question, how exactly is he going to pay off the debt while he's in prison, right? And, of course, the answer is that the first servant is not actually interested here in having the debt paid off, is he? I mean, if what he really wanted was the money, then the best thing he could do would be to give his fellow servant an extension, By putting him in prison, he's taken away any ability this guy has to pay him back. What's he really want? 
He just wants to see his fellow servants suffer for what he has done. He doesn't believe that he's going to pay him back. And so rather than wait and maybe hope, but be burned again, he says, we're just going to deal with this. I'm going to get my payment. It's not going to be the payment of finance, but it's going to be the payment of knowing that you have suffered in the way that I have suffered by having given you this money and not getting it back. And again, the parallels become really obvious, don't they? Because in this point in the story, Jesus transitions. And whereas the king and the servant are a clear allegory to us and our relationship with God, here these two servants clearly are metaphorically describing our relationship with others. And the way that we deal with hurt and pain and loss and forgiveness. And that when we feel that we have lost something, when we feel that someone has taken something from us, our reaction is rarely a logical, measured response to what's going on. Because pain runs much deeper than logic controls. Jesus is using debt here as the metaphor for forgiveness because when we are hurt, we lose something. And whatever that thing is that we've lost, whether it's our comfort, our reputation, feelings of acceptance or love or safety, whatever it is, that we lose when we are hurt, when that person betrayed you, when that person lied to you, when that person spoke about you behind your back, when that person made that promise and broke it again and again and again and again, they took something from you. And let's not minimize that. Okay? There's a way of looking at this story that says that the servant, the unforgiving servant, is absurd because the debt that he was forgiven was so much larger than the debt that he was owed. And while that may be true to a certain extent, what you and I both know is that when we are hurt, perspective means practically nothing. That your pain is not lessened by understanding that someone else has greater pain or that things could have been worse. But those sort of platitudes don't really help us to deal with what we have lost. That in the story, the servant losing a hundred denarii, it's a hundred denarii. And in your pain and in your hurt, the loss that you feel, it's real. That person who betrayed you, they really betrayed you. That person who was unfaithful, they were really unfaithful. You don't feel as loved as you used to. You don't feel as accepted as you used to. Your reputation may actually be damaged. 
your comfort has actually lessened. There is a real debt. And so we, feeling the loss, instinctively go to, I must get paid back. I need to be restored. I need payment. I need payment from the one who has hurt me. But so many of those things that have been taken away cannot be simply given back. When someone betrays you, it's not a simple matter of just saying, I'm sorry, and everything's back to normal, is it? And understanding the inability of others to give us back what they've taken from us, we turn instead exactly to the same place that this servant turned. If I can't get what I'm owed, then I will get revenge. Then I will at least make sure that the person who took it from me feels the same pain that I feel. If they can't give me back my comfort, then I will take away their comfort. If they can't give me back love, then I will take away their feeling of love and acceptance. If they can't give me back my reputation, then I will destroy their reputation. Or at the very least, I will spend my time fantasizing about what it would feel like to do all of those things to that person. And in doing all that, we're not actually getting any closer to being whole, to being restored, to getting paid back what we've lost, But there is a consequence, and Jesus goes on. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. Because they see what he does not see. We all look at this story and we're like, oh, it's the same words, it's very obvious. There's this clear parallel. He doesn't see it. We don't see it either. But they all see it. And in their distress, they went and they report to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I gave you, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Do you not see the connection here? This is so obviously parallel. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Okay. I would think you would see this, but maybe you don't, so let me make this crystal clear. Let me put you in the jail, possibly right alongside the other servant that you just put in jail. And maybe now this will become apparent to you what's going on here. And then Jesus ends with this line. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
Okay, I'm going to deal with that line, but let's not miss the big point here. Because Jesus' point about forgiveness here is so crystal clear. We are the unforgiving servant. In our interactions with our fellow, specifically, especially with our fellow Christians, but in general with everyone, we who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have been extended forgiveness for an unpayable debt to turn around and be unforgiving to anyone else is absurd. But we do not see it. Just like this servant, our hurt is so much bigger in our own eyes than our debt. What I've lost is so much more than what I owe. And sometimes, the only way we're going to recognize that is to go through suffering and pain. Sometimes, we have to have our hypocrisy dragged in front of us to open our eyes to see what's going on. And this is a truth about unforgiveness. By the way, I found out this week from Spellcheck that unforgiveness is not a word. However, it is definitely a thing, okay? Um, If forgiveness is a thing, then I can attest unforgiveness is definitely a thing. And the problem with it is this. Even though we think we're getting revenge, the person we're harming is ourselves, Which is not to say we don't harm other people. But it is to say that we put a much greater pain in our own lives when we do not forgive. We suffer when we do not forgive. If you have dealt with bitterness for any length of time, if there is someone who has hurt you, and as years have gone by, you have not forgiven them, will you please be honest and look in the mirror? You are not healthy. That is hurting you. That is at the risk of over-exaggerating, it is in many ways eating you alive inside. That pain and that bitterness and that hurt is consequential. And whatever Jesus means in verse 35, and again, we're going to get to it in a second, he's clearly saying this, that when we do not forgive, we bring ourselves great pain. Great pain torment. In light of the gospel, we who have been forgiven should be the most forgiving people on the planet. If if what we say about Jesus is true, if he really took all that pain, all that suffering on himself, for us, and not because we earned it, but just because he loved us, and he forgave us all of our debt, then we should be more quick to forgive than anyone else. 
But I believe there's more. I believe there's more. I believe this story is not just a should, but it's a can. I believe Jesus is not just saying we should be forgiving. I believe Jesus is telling the story so that we'll understand that we actually can forgive. In a supernatural way, we who believe the gospel is true have an ability to forgive that no one else has. So here we go, verse 35. So also being delivered to the jailers, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying, because this is what it sounds like, is Jesus saying that if you don't forgive others, then God will not forgive you? Is Jesus saying that our forgiveness, our righteousness, our justification, or our salvation from our sins is dependent upon our forgiveness of others? Let me phrase it another way. Is Jesus saying that in order for God to save us, that we have to do something? Well, clearly... All throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, the answer to that question is a resounding no. Over and over and over again, we are taught that our salvation, our forgiveness is all from God, is a gift from God, that we do nothing to earn it. There's nothing we can add to it, and there's nothing we can take away from it. So Jesus can't be saying here that. In order to have forgiveness, we have to have faith, we have to believe in the sacrifice Jesus made, and we have to forgive others. Because clearly throughout Scripture, the only requirement for forgiveness is to believe in the one who has forgiven us. So what is he saying? And I believe this line is actually pretty nuanced. But what Jesus is saying here is that a true understanding of the gospel, a true understanding which leads to salvation, a true belief, a true trust, a true faith in Jesus' sacrifice offered to us will have a practical outworking in our lives. But the order here is really, really, really important. Okay, and so I want to overstress this. And if you already get it and you think I'm, I'm beating you over the head with something you already understand, forgive me. Uh, forgive me. Um, but, <clears throat> but I just want to make sure this is really clear, okay? Jesus is not saying, you must forgive to be forgiven. But Jesus is saying, if you are forgiven, you will forgive. And those are two totally different things. And they come from a very, very essential link in this story between the two situations. Jesus tells these two situations about the king forgiving the servant and then the servant not forgiving his fellow servant. Not just, now this is big, not just to show 
that the servant should have forgiven his fellow servant, but to show that he could forgive his fellow servant. Let me explain what I mean. As long as the servant, our main character, owed 10,000 talents to his master, he was in no position to forgive a debt of even 100 denarii from a fellow servant. Financially, it wouldn't work. Because what did we say about forgiveness? There's always a cost. And when you forgive a debt, you have to absorb the debt yourself. And this servant could not have just said, hey, you don't owe me the 100 denarii, if he still owed money to his master. It's only because his master wiped his debt clean that he would have the ability to wipe someone else's debt clean. It's only because of the gospel that we are even able to forgive others. Let's say it again. When we are hurt, we suffer loss. And it's real loss. The only way we can forgive that debt is if that loss is absorbed by someone else. If what we are missing is filled in by another source. Are you with me on this? The gospel doesn't just forgive our debt although it does do that. It also provides us with all that we need. So that when someone else ruins my reputation, I am able, instead of going to them and demanding my reputation back, I am able to fall on my Savior and know that when God looks at me, in His eyes, my reputation is Christ. And that he doesn't see the bad name being spread about me. He sees the name of his son. When someone betrays me and takes away my ability to trust. I can't get that back from them. But I can, through the gospel, go to the one who will never leave me or forsake me. And I can place my trust in Him. That every gap, whether it's safety or security or success or comfort or love or whatever it is, in the gospel, I find all of those in Jesus Christ. And because those are found in Christ, I am free to stop demanding them from anyone else. That I am able to forgive and release the debt. This is why Jesus doesn't just say that forgiveness is something we do. Look at verse 35. He says, this is what my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart means that forgiveness is a response to Jesus' love and forgiveness of us. It's not just an action we perform. 
It's not just a thing we do. If you have kids and they've ever been fighting about something and you tell them, you need to say you're sorry and you need to forgive and so then you get the, I'm sorry, I forgive you. And you know it means absolutely nothing, right? Because it's just a thing you do. But if you tell them, well, no, forgive them from your heart. You can't just automatically do anything from your heart. Things that come from our heart are a response to what is done to our heart. Unforgiveness and revenge is a response to what's been done to us from others. Forgiveness can only come as a response to what's been done for us by Jesus. This is the beautiful truth of this story. This is why forgiveness isn't necessarily the same as restoration. And I think this is important always to point out whenever we talk about, rest, about forgiveness. Your hurt and your pain is real. And forgiveness does not mean always placing yourself in front of that person and allowing them to hurt you again. If you have been abused, forgiveness does not mean allowing that person to abuse you again. But it does mean releasing the debt. Not continually trying to get that person to pay you back for what they've taken from you. Here's what I want you to see. And this is the beauty of this story. If you're struggling to forgive, Jesus is not saying just try harder. If this story is not based around the gospel, it's just an incredibly heavy weight. If you came in here this morning struggling with pain and hurt, and all you hear is, you better forgive or else, you're going to walk out here more miserable than you came in. So please hear this. What Jesus is telling us is that you are free. You are free from your debt. And in him, you have all that you need. You may not always recognize it. You may not always feel it. But if you will open your eyes to see your forgiveness in Christ, then you will be free to forgive others and to release yourself from the pain that you're actually piling on yourself. You are free. Let your heart feel what is true. You are free to forgive because you have been forgiven. We're going to pray. We'll have a time of reflection. And then we're going to share communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you love us. You have loved us with such 
an incredible, undeserved, unearned love. And so often, we refuse to see the depth of your love. God, please open our eyes. Please open our eyes to understand the meaning of your sacrifice. God, if there's anyone here who has not trusted in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to bring reconciliation to you, God, I pray that they will believe, that they would trust, not in anything they could do, not in their own efforts to pay you back, but solely and completely in the one who has paid their debt for them. And for those who call themselves Christians, who believe that the gospel is true, God, I pray that we would be reminded of all that you've given to us, the depth of your love, and the real true impact that it has in our lives, in our relationships, in our world. God, please work in our hearts. Please stir our hearts to forgive, yes, to know you more. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.